This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alex C. Talander. The Tale of the Mysterious Mirror by Sir Walter Scott. 1. You are fond, said my aunt, of sketches of the society which has passed away. I wish I could describe to you Sir Philip Forrester, the chartered libertine of Scottish good company, about the end of the last century. I never saw him, indeed, but my mother's traditions were full of his wit, gallantry, and dissipation. This gay knight flourished about the end of the seventeenth and beginning of the eighteenth century. He was the Sir Charles Easy, and the Lovelace, of his day and country, renowned for the number of duels he had fought, and the successful intrigues which he had carried on. The supremacy which he had attained in the fashionable world was absolute, and when we combine it with one or two anecdotes, for which, if laws were made for every degree, he ought certainly to have been hanged, the popularity of such a person really serves to show, either that the present times are much more decent, if not more virtuous, than they formerly were, or that high-breeding then was of more difficult attainment than that which is now so called, and consequently entitled the successful professor to a proportional degree of plenary indulgences and privileges. No bow of this day could have borne out so ugly a story as that of pretty Peggy Grindstone, the miller's daughter at Siller Mills. It had well-nigh made work for the Lord Advocate, but it hurts to Philip Forrester no more than the hail hurts the hearthstone. He was as well received in society as ever, and dined with the Duke of A. The day the poor girl was buried, she died of heartbreak, but that has nothing to do with my story. Now, you must listen to a single word upon kith, kin, and ally. I promise you I will not be prolix but it is necessary to the authenticity of my legend that you should know that Sir Philip Forrester, with his handsome person, elegant accomplishments, and fashionable manners, married the younger Miss Palconer of King's Copland. The elder sister of this lady had previously become the wife of my grandfather, Sir Geoffrey Bothwell, and brought into our family of good fortune. Miss Jemima, or Miss Jemmy Falconer, as she was usually called, had also about ten thousand pounds sterling, then thought a very handsome portion indeed. The two sisters were extremely different, though each had their admirers while they remained single. Lady Bothwell had some touch of the old King's Copland blood about her. She was bold, though not to the degree of audacity, ambitious and desirous to raise her house and family, and was, as been said, a considerable spur to my grandfather, who was otherwise an indolent man, but whom, unless he has been slandered, his lady's influence involved in some political matters which had been more wisely let alone. She was a woman of high principle, however, and masculine good sense, as some of her letters testify, which are still in my wainscot cabinet. Jimmy Falconer was the reverse of her sister in every respect. Her understanding did not reach above the ordinary pitch, if indeed she could be said to have attained it. Her beauty, while it lasted, consisted, in a great measure, of delicacy of complexion and regularity of features, without any peculiar force of expression. Even these charms faded under the sufferings attendant on an ill-sorted match. She was passionately attached to her husband, by whom she was treated with a callous yet polite indifference, which, to one whose heart was as tender as her judgment was weak, was more painful perhaps than absolute ill-usage. Sir Philip was a voluptuary, that is, a completely selfish egotist, whose disposition and character resembled the rapier he wore, polished, keen, and brilliant, but inflexible and unpitying. As he observed carefully all the usual forms towards his lady, he had the art to deprive her even of the compassion of the world, and useless and unavailing as that may be while actually possessed by the sufferer, it is to a mind like Lady Forrester's most painful to know she has it not. The tattle of society did its best to place the peccant husband above the suffering wife. Some called her a poor spiritless thing, 
and declared that, with a little help of her sister's spirit, she might have brought to reason any Sir Philip whatsoever, were it the termagant Falconbridge himself. But the greater part of their acquaintance affected candor, and saw faults on both sides, though in fact there only existed the oppressor and the oppressed. The tone of such critics was, to be sure, no one will justify Sir Philip Forrester, but then we all know Sir Philip and Jimmy Falconer might have known what she had to expect from the beginning. What made her set her cap at Sir Philip? He would never have looked as to her if she had not thrown herself at his head with her poor ten thousand pounds. I am sure, if it is money he wanted, she spoiled his market. I know where Sir Philip could have done much better. And then, if she would have the man, could not she try to make him more comfortable at home, and have his friends oftener, and not plague him with the squalling children, and take her all was handsome and in good style about the house? I declare I think Sir Philip would have made a very domestic man with a woman who knew how to manage him. Now these fair critics, in raising their profound edifice of domestic felicity, did not recollect that the cornerstone was wanting, and that to receive good company with good cheer, the means of the banquet ought to have been furnished by Sir Philip, whose income, dilapidated as it was, was not equal to the display of hospitality required, and at the same time to the supply of the good knight's menus plaisirs. So, in spite of all that was so sagely suggested by female friends, Sir Philip carried his good humour everywhere abroad, and left at home a solitary mansion and a pining spouse. At length, inconvenienced in his money affairs, and tired even of the short time which he spent in his own dull house, Sir Philip Forrester determined to take a trip to the continent in the capacity of a volunteer. It was then common for men of fashion to do so, and our knight perhaps was of opinion that a touch of the military character, just enough to exalt, but not render pedantic, his qualities as beau garçon, was necessary to maintain possession of the elevated situation which he held in the ranks of fashion. Sir Philip's resolution threw his wife into agonies of terror, by which the worthy baronet was so much annoyed that, contrary to his wont, he took some trouble to soothe her apprehensions, and once more brought her to shed tears, in which sorrow was not altogether unmingled with pleasure. Lady Bothwell asked, as a favour, Sir Philip's permission to receive her sister and her family into her own house during his absence on the continent. Sir Philip readily assented to a proposition which saves expense, silenced the foolish people who might have talked of a deserted wife and family, and gratified Lady Bothwell, for whom he felt some respect, as for one who often spoke to him, always with freedom, and sometimes with severity, without being deterred either by his raillery or the prestige of his reputation. A day or two before Sir Philip's departure, Lady Bothwell rook the liberty of asking him, in her sister's presence, the direct question, which his timid wife had often desired, but never ventured to put to him. Pray, Sir Philip, what route do you take when you reach the continent? I go from Leith to Helvoet, by a packet with advices. That I comprehend perfectly, said Lady Bothwell dryly. But do you not mean to remain long at Helvoet, I presume? I should like to know what is your next object. You ask me, my dear lady, answered Sir Philip, a question which I have not dared to ask myself. The answer depends on the fate of war. I shall, of course, go to headquarters, wherever they may happen to be for the time, deliver my letters of introduction, learn as much of the noble art of war as may suffice a poor interloper and immature, and then take a glance at the sort of thing which we read so much in the Gazette. And I trust, Sir Philip, said Lady Bothwell, that you will remember that you are a husband and a father, and that though you think fit to indulge this military fancy, you will not let it hurry you into dangers which it is certainly unnecessary for any save professional persons to encounter. "'Lady Bothwell does me too much honour," replied the adventurous knight, "'in regarding such a circumstance with the slightest interest. 
but to soothe your flattering anxiety, I trust your ladyship will recollect that I cannot expose to hazard the venerable and paternal character which you so obligingly recommend to my protection, without putting in some peril an honest fellow called Philip Forrester, with whom I have kept company for thirty years, and with whom, though some folk consider him coxcomb, I have not the least desire to part. Well, Sir Philip, you are the best judge of your own affairs. I have little right to interfere. You are not my husband. God forbid, said Sir Philip hastily, instantly adding, however, God forbid that I should deprive my friend Sir Geoffrey of so inestimable a treasure. But you are my sister's husband, replied the lady, and I suppose you are aware of her present distress of mind. If hearing of nothing else from morning to night can make me aware of it, said Sir Philip, I should know something of the matter. I do not pretend to reply to your wit, Sir Philip, answered Lady Bothwell, but you must be sensible that all this distress is on account of apprehensions for your personal safety. In that case, I am surprised that Lady Bothwell, at least, should give herself so much trouble upon so insignificant a subject. My sister's interest may account for my being anxious to learn something of Sir Philip Forrester's motions, about which otherwise I know he would not wish me to concern myself. I have a brother's safety, too, to be anxious. You mean Major Falconer, your brother by the mother's side? What can he possibly have to do with our present agreeable conversation? You have had words together, Sir Philip, said Lady Bothwell. Naturally we are connections, replied Sir Philip, and as such have always had the usual intercourse. That is an evasion of the subject, answered the lady. By words I mean angry words, on the subject of your usage of your wife. If, replied Sir Philip Forrester, you suppose Major Falconer simple enough to intrude his advice upon me, Lady Bothwell, in my domestic matters you are indeed warranted in believing that I might possibly so far displease with the interference as to request him to reserve his advice till it was asked. And being on these terms you are going to join the very army in which my brother Falconer is now serving? No man knows the path of honour better than Major Falconer, said Sir Philip. An aspirant after fame, like me, cannot choose a better guide than his footsteps. Lady Bothwell rose and went to the window, the tears gushing from her eyes. And this heartless raillery, she said, is all the consideration that is to be given to our apprehensions of a quarrel which may bring on the most terrible consequences. Good God, of what can men's hearts be made, who can thus daily rid the agony of others? Sir Philip Forrester was moved. He laid aside the mocking tone in which he had hitherto spoken. Dear Lady Bothwell, he said, taking her reluctant hand, we are both wrong. You are too deeply serious. I, perhaps, too little so. The dispute I had with Major Falconer was of no earthly consequence. Had anything occurred betwixt us that ought to have been settled par voie du fait, as we say in France, neither of us are persons that are likely to postpone such a meeting. Permit me to say that were it generally known that you or my Lady Forrester are apprehensive of such a catastrophe, it might be the very means of bringing about what would not otherwise be likely to happen. I know your good sense, Lady Bothwell, and that you will understand me when I say that really my affairs require my absence for some months. This Jemima cannot understand. It is a perpetual recurrence of questions. Why can you not do this, or that, or the third thing? And when you have proved to her later that her expedients are totally ineffectual, you have just to begin the whole round again. Now do you tell her, dear Lady Bothwell, that you are satisfied? She is, you must confess, one of those persons with whom authority goes further than reasoning. Do but repose a little confidence in me, and you shall see how amply I will repay it. Lady Bothwell shook her head, as one but half satisfied. How difficult it is to extend confidence, when the basis on which it ought to rest has been so much shaken. But I will do my best to make Jemima easy, and further I can only say that for keeping your present purpose I hold you responsible both to God and man. Do not fear that I will deceive you, said Sir Philip. The safest conveyance to me will be through the general post office. Hovotsluis. 
where I will take care to leave orders for forwarding my letters. As for Falconer, our only encounter will be over a bottle of burgundy, so make yourself perfectly easy on his score. Lady Bothwell could not make herself easy, yet she was sensible that her sister hurt her own cause by taking on, as the maid-servants call it, too vehemently, and by showing before every stranger, by manner and sometimes by words also, a dissatisfaction with her husband's journey, that was sure to come to his ears and equally certain to displease him. But there was no help for this domestic dissension, which ended only with the day of separation. I am sorry I cannot tell, with position, the year in which Sir Philip Forrester went over to Flanders, but it was one of those in which the campaign opened with extraordinary fury, and many bloody though indecisive skirmishes were fought between the French on the one side and the Allies on the other. In all our modern improvements there are none perhaps greater than in the accuracy and speed with which intelligence is transmitted from any scene of action to those in this country whom it may concern. During Marlborough's campaigns the sufferings of the many who had relations in or along with the army were greatly augmented by the suspense in which they were detained for weeks, after they had heard of bloody battles in which, in all probability, those for whom their bosoms throbbed with anxiety had been personally engaged. Amongst those who were most agonized by this state of uncertainty was the, I had almost said deserted, wife of the gay Sir Philip Forrester. A single letter had informed her of his arrival on the continent. No others were received. One notice occurred in the newspapers in which volunteer Sir Philip Forrester was mentioned as having been entrusted with a dangerous reconnaissance, which he had executed with the greatest courage, dexterity, and intelligence, and received the thanks of the commanding officer. The sense of his having acquired distinction brought a momentary glow into the lady's pale cheek, but it was instantly lost in ashen whiteness at the recollection of his danger. After this they had no news whatever, neither from Sir Philip nor even from their brother Falconer. The case of Lady Forrester was not indeed different from that of hundreds in the same situation, but a feeble mind is necessarily an irritable one, and the suspense which some bear with constitutional indifference or philosophical resignation, and some with the disposition to believe and hope the best, was intolerable to Lady Forrester, at once solitary and sensitive, low-spirited and devoid of strength of mind, whether natural or acquired. 2. As she received no further news of Sir Philip, whether directly or indirectly, his unfortunate lady began now to feel a sort of consolation, even in those careless habits which had so often given her pain. He is so thoughtless, she repeated a hundred times a day to her sister. He never writes when things are going on smoothly. It is his way. Had anything happened, he would have informed us. Lady Bothwell listened to her sister without attempting to console her. Probably she might be of opinion that even the worst intelligence which could be received from Flanders might not be without some touch of consolation, and that the dowager lady, if so she was doomed to be called, might have a source of happiness unknown to the wife of the gayest and finest gentleman in Scotland. This conviction became stronger as they learned from inquiries made at headquarters that Sir Philip was no longer with the army, though whether he had been taken or slain in some of those skirmishes which were perpetually occurring, and in which he loved to distinguish himself, or whether he had, for some unknown reason or capricious change of mind, voluntarily left the service, none of his countrymen in the camp of allies could form even a conjecture. Meantime his creditors at home became clamorous, entered into possession of his properties, and threatened his person, should he be rash enough to return to Scotland. These additional disadvantages aggravated Lady Bothwell's displeasure against the fugitive husband, while her sister saw nothing in any of them, save what tended to increase her grief for the absence of him whom her imagination now represented, as it had before marriage, gallant, gay, and affectionate. About this period there appeared in Edinburgh a man of singular appearance and pretensions. He was commonly called the Paduan Doctor, from having received his education at that famous university. 
He was supposed to possess some rare receipts in medicine, with which, it was affirmed, he had wrought remarkable cures. But though, on the one hand, the physicians of Edinburgh termed him an empiric, there were many persons, and among them some of the clergy, who, while they admitted the truth of the cures and the force of his remedies, alleged that Dr. Baptista Damiotti made use of charms and unlawful arts in order to obtain success in his practice. The resorting to him was even solemnly preached against as a seeking of health from idols and a trusting to the help with which was to come from Egypt. But the protection which the Padawan doctor received from some friends of interest and consequence enabled him to set these imputations at defiance, and to assume, even in the city of Edinburgh, famed as it was for abhorrence of witches and necromancers, the dangerous character of an expounder of futurity. It was at length rumored that for a certain gratification, which, of course, was not an inconsiderable one, Dr. Baptista Damiotti could tell the fate of the absent friends, and show his visitors the personal form of their absent friends, and the action in which they were engaged at the moment. This rumor came to the ears of Lady Forrester, who had reached that pitch of mental agony in which the sufferer will do anything, or endure anything, that suspense may be converted into certainty. Gentle and timid in most cases, her mate's state of mind made her equally obstinate and reckless, and it was with no small surprise and alarm that her sister, Lady Bothwell, heard her express a resolution to visit this man of art, and learn from him the fate of her husband. Lady Bothwell demonstrated on the improbability that such pretensions as those of this foreigner could be founded in anything but imposture. "'I care not,' said the deserted wife, "'what degree of ridicule I may incur. If there be any one chance out of a hundred that I may obtain some certainty of my husband's fate, I would not miss that chance for whatever else the world can offer me.' Lady Bothwell next urged the unlawfulness of resorting to such sources of forbidden knowledge. "'Sister,' replied the sufferer, "'he who is dying of thirst cannot refrain from drinking even poison water. She who suffers under suspense must seek information, even where the perils which offer it unhallowed and infernal. I go to learn my fate alone, and this very evening will I know it. The sun that rises to-morrow shall find me, if not more happy, at least more resigned.' "'Sister,' said Lady Bothwell, "'if you are determined upon this wild step, you shall not go alone.' If this man be an impostor, you may too much agitated be by your feelings to detect his villainy. If, which I cannot believe, there be any truth in what he pretends, you shall not be exposed alone to a communication of so extraordinary a nature. I will go with you, if indeed you determine to go, but yet reconsider your project, and renounce inquiries which cannot be prosecuted without guilt, and perhaps without danger." Lady Forrester threw herself into her sister's arms, and clasping her to her bosom, thanked her a hundred times for the offer of her company, while she declined with a melancholy gesture the friendly advice with which it was accompanied. When the hour of twilight arrived, which was the period when the Padawan doctor was understood to receive the visits of those who came to consult with him, the two ladies left their apartments in the Cannon Gate of Edinburgh, having their dress arranged like that of women of an inferior description, and their plaids disposed around their faces as they were worn by the same class. For in those days of aristocracy, the quality of the wearer was generally indicated by the manner in which her plaid was disposed, as well as by the fineness of its texture. It was Lady Bothwell who had suggested this species of a disguise, partly to avoid observation as they should go to the conjurer's house, and partly in order to make trial of its penetration by appearing before him in a feigned character. Lady Forrester's servant, of tried fidelity, had been employed by her to propitiate the doctor by a suitable fee, and a story intimating that a soldier's wife desired to know the fate of her husband, a subject upon which, in all probability, the sage was very frequently consulted. So the last moment, when the palace clock struck eight, Lady Bothwell earnestly watched her sister, in hopes that she might retreat from her rash undertaking, 
but as mildness and even timidity is capable at times of vehement and fixed purposes, she found Lady Forrester resolutely unmoved, and determined when the moment of departure arrived. Ill-satisfied with the expedition, but determined not to leave her sister at such a crisis, Lady Bothwell accompanied Lady Forrester through more than one obscure street and lane, the servant walking before, and acting as their guide. At length he suddenly turned into a narrow court, and knocked at an arched door, which seemed to belong to a building of some antiquity. It opened, though no one appeared to act as porter, and the servant, stepping aside from the entrance, motioned the ladies to enter. They had no sooner done so than it shut, and excluded their guide. The two ladies found themselves in a small vestibule, illuminated by a dim lamp, and having, when the door was closed, no communication with the external light of air. The door of an inner apartment, partly open, was at the further side of the vestibule. "'We must not hesitate now, Jemima,' said Lady Bothwell, and walked forwards into the interior room, where, surrounded by books, maps, philosophical utensils, and other implements of peculiar shape and appearance, they found the man of art. There was nothing very peculiar in the Italian's appearance. He had the dark complexion and marked features of his country, seemed about fifty years old, and was handsomely but plainly dressed in a full suit of black clothes, which was then the universal costume of the medical profession. Large wax lights in silver sconces illuminated the apartment, which was reasonably furnished. He rose as the ladies entered, and notwithstanding the inferiority of their dress, received them with the marked respect due to their quality, and which foreigners usually punctilious in rendering to those to whom such honors are due. Lady Bothwell endeavored to endain her proposed incognito, and as the doctor ushered them to the upper end of the room, made a motion declining his courtesy, as unfitted for their condition. "'We are poor people, sir,' she said. "'Only my sister's distress has brought us to consult your worship whether—' He smiled as he interrupted her. "'I am aware, madam, of your sister's distress, and its cause. I am aware also that I am honored with a visit from two ladies of the highest consideration, Lady Bothwell and Lady Forrester.' If I could not distinguish them from the class of society which their present dress would indicate, there would be small possibility of my being able to gratify them by giving the information which they come to seek. I can easily understand, said Lady Boswell. Pardon my boldness to interrupt you, milady, cried the Italian. Your ladyship was about to say that you could easily understand that I had got possession of your names by means of your domestic. But in thinking so, you do injustice to the fidelity of your servant, and I may add to the skill of one who is also not less your humble servant, Baptista Damiotti. I have no intention to do either, sir, said Lady Bothwell, maintaining a tone of composure, though somewhat surprised. But the situation is something new to me. If you knew who we are, you also know, sir, what brought us here. Curiosity to know the fate of a Scottish gentleman of rank, now or lately upon the continent, answered the seer. His name is Calvaliero Filippo Forrester, a gentleman who has the honor to be husband to this lady and with your ladyship's permission for using plain language, the misfortune not to value as it deserves that inestimable advantage. Lady Forrest sighed deeply, and Lady Bothwell replied, Since you know our object without our telling it, the only question that remains is whether you have the power to relieve my sister's anxiety. I have, madam, answered the Padawan scholar, but there is still a previous inquiry. Have you the courage to behold with your eyes what the Cavaliero Filippo Forrester is now doing, or will you take it on my report? That question my sister must answer for herself, said Lady Bothwell. With my own eyes will I endure to see whatever you have power to show me, said Lady Forrester, with the same determined spirit which had stimulated her since her resolution was taken upon this subject. There may be danger in it. If gold can compensate the risk, said Lady Forrester, taking out her purse, I do not such things for the purpose of gain, answered the foreigner. I dare not turn my art to such a purpose. If I take the gold of the wealthy, it is but to bestow it on the poor nor do I ever accept more than the sum I have already received from your servant. Put up your purse, madam, and an adept needs not your gold. 
Lady Bothwell, considering this rejection of her sister's offer as a mere trick of an empiric to induce her to press a larger sum upon him, and willing that the scene should be commenced and ended, offered some gold in turn, observing that it was only to enlarge the sphere of his charity. Let Lady Bothwell enlarge the sphere of her own charity, said the Paduan, not merely in giving of alms, in which I know she is not deficient, but in judging the character of others, and let her oblige Baptista Damiotti, by believing him honest, till she shall discover him to be a knave. Do not be surprised, madam, if I speak in answer to your thoughts rather than your expressions, and tell me once more whether you have courage to look on what I am prepared to show. I own, sir, said Lady Bothwell, that your words strike me with some sense of fear, but whatever my sister desires to witness, I will not shrink from witnessing along with her. Nay, the danger only consists in the risk of your resolution failing you. The sight can only last for the space of seven minutes, and should you interrupt the vision by speaking a single word, not only would the charm be broken, but some danger might result to the spectators. But if you can remain steadily silent for the seven minutes, your curiosity will be gratified without the slightest risk, and for this I will engage my honour. Internally Lady Bothwell thought the security was but an indifferent one, but she suppressed the suspicion, as if she had believed that the adept, whose dark features wore a half-formed smile, could in reality read even her most secret reflections. A solemn pause then ensued, until Lady Forrester gathered courage enough to reply to the physician, as he turned himself, that she would abide with firmness and silence the sight which he had promised to exhibit to them. Upon this he made them a low obeisance, and saying he went to prepare matters to meet their wish, left the apartment. The two sisters, hand in hand, as if seeking by that close union to divert any danger which might threaten them, sat down on two seats in immediate contact with each other. Jemima seeking support in the manly and habitual courage of Lady Bothwell, and she, on the other hand, more agitated than she had expected, endeavouring to fortify herself by the desperate resolution which circumstances had forced her sister to assume. The one perhaps said to herself that her sister never feared anything, and the other might reflect that what so feeble a minded woman as Jemima did not fear could not properly be a subject of apprehension to a person of firmness and resolution like herself. In a few moments the thoughts of both were diverted from their own situation by a strain of music so singularly sweet and solemn that, while it seemed calculated to avert or dispel any feeling unconnected with its harmony, increased, at the same time, the solemn excitation which the preceding interview was calculated to produce. The music was that of some instrument with which they were unacquainted, but circumstances afterwards led my ancestress to believe that it was that of the harmonica, which she heard at a much later period in life. With these heaven-born sounds had ceased, a door opened in the upper end of the apartment, and they saw Damiotti, standing at the head of two or three steps, signed to them to advance. His dress was so different from that which he had worn a few minutes before that they could hardly recognize him, and the deadly paleness of his countenance, and a certain stern rigidity of muscles, like that of one whose mind is made up to some strange and daring action, had totally changed the somewhat sarcastic expression with which he had previously regarded them both, and particularly Lady Boswell. He was barefooted, excepting a species of sandals in the antique fashion. His legs were naked beneath the knees. Above them he wore hose, and a doublet of dark crimson silk close to his body, and over that a flowing loose robe, something resembling a surplice, or of snow-white line. His throat and neck were uncovered, and his long, straight hair was carefully combed down of full length. As the ladies approached at his bidding, he showed no gesture of that ceremonious courtesy of which he had been formerly lavish. On the contrary, he made the signal advance with an air of command, and when arm in arm and with insecure steps, the sisters approached the spot where he stood, it was with a warning frown that he pressed his finger to his lips, as if reiterating his condition of absolute silence, while stalking before them, he led the way into the next apartment. This was a large room, hung with black, as if for a funeral. 
At the upper end was a table, or rather a species of altar, covered with the same lugubrious color, on which lay divers objects, resembling the usual implements of sorcery. These objects were not indeed visible as they advanced into the apartment, for the light which displayed them, being only that of two expiring lamps, was extremely faint. The master, to use the Italian phrase for persons of his description, approached the upper end of the room with a genuflection like that of a Catholic to the crucifix, and at the same time crossed himself. The ladies followed in silence, and arm in arm. Two or three low, broad steps led to a platform in front of the altar, of what resembled such. Here the sage took his stand and placed the ladies beside him, once more earnestly repeating by signs his injunctions of silence. The Italian then, extending his bare arm from under his linen vestment, pointed with his forefinger to five large flambeaux, or torches, placed on each side of the altar. They took fire successively at the approach of his hand, or rather of his finger, and spread a strong light through the room. But by this the visitors could discern that on the seeming altar were disposed two naked swords laid crosswise, a large open book which they conceived to be a copy of the Holy Scriptures, but in a language to them unknown, and besides this mysterious volume was placed a human skull. But what struck the sisters most was a very tall and broad mirror, which occupied all the space behind the altar, and illuminated by the lighted torches, reflected the mysterious articles which were laid upon it. The master then placed himself between the two ladies, and pointing to the mirror, took each by the hand without speaking a syllable. They gazed intently on the polished and sable space to which he had directed their attention. Suddenly the surface assumed a new and singular appearance. It no longer simply reflected the objects placed before it, but, as if it had self-contained scenery of its own, objects began to appear within it, at first in a disorderly, indistinct, and miscellaneous manner, like form arranging itself out of chaos at length in distinct and defined shape and symmetry. It was thus that, after some shifting of light and darkness over the face of the wonderful glass, a long perspective of arches and columns began to arrange itself on its sides, and a vaulted roof on the upper part of it, till, after many oscillations, the whole vision gained a fixed and stationary appearance, representing the interior of a foreign church. The pillars were stately, and hung with scutcheons. The arches were lofty and magnificent. The floor was lettered with funeral inscriptions but there were no separate shrines, no images, no display of chalice or crucifix on the altar. It was, therefore, a Protestant church upon the continent. A clergyman, dressed in the Geneva gown and band, stood by the communion table, and with the Bible open before him, and his clerk awaiting in the background, seemed prepared to perform some service of the church to which he belonged. At length there entered the middle aisle of the building, a numerous party, which appeared to be a bridal one, as a lady and gentleman walked first, hand in hand, followed by a large concourse of persons of both sexes, gaily, nay richly, attired. The bride, whose features they could distinctly see, seemed not more than sixteen years old, and extremely beautiful. The bridegroom, for some seconds, moved rather with his shoulder towards them, and his face averted, but his elegance of form and step struck the sisters at once with the same apprehension. As he turned his face suddenly, it was frightfully realized, and they saw, in the gay bridegroom before them, Sir Philip Forrester. His wife uttered an imperfect exclamation, at the sound of which the whole scene stirred and seemed to separate. "'I could compare it to nothing,' said Lady Bothwell, while recounting the wonderful tale, but to the dispersion of the reflection offered but a deep and calm pool, when a stone is suddenly cast into it, and the shadows became dissipated and broken. The master pressed both the ladies' hands severely, as if to remind them of their promise, and of the danger which they incurred. The exclamation died away on Lady Forrester's tongue, without attaining perfect utterance, and the scene in the glass, after the fluctuation of a minute, again resumed to the eye its former appearance of a real scene, 
existing within the mirror, as if represented in a picture, save that the figures were movable instead of being stationary. The representation of Sir Philip Forrester, now distinctly visible in form and feature, was seen to lead on towards the clergyman that beautiful girl, who advanced at once with diffidence, and with a species of affectionate pride. In the meantime, and just as the clergyman had arranged the bridal company before him, and seemed about to commence the service, another group of persons, of whom two or three were officers, entered the church. They moved at first forward, as though they came to witness the bridal ceremony, but suddenly one of the officers, whose back was towards the spectators, detached himself from his companions, and rushed hastily toward the marriage party, when the whole of them turned towards him, as if attracted by some exclamation which had accompanied his advance. Suddenly the intruder drew his sword, the bridegroom unsheathed his own, and made towards him. Swords were also drawn by other individuals, both of the marriage party and of those who had last entered. They fell into a sort of confusion, the clergyman and some elder and graver persons, laboring apparently to keep the peace, while the hotter spirits on both sides brandished their weapons. But now the period of brief space during which the soothsayer, as he pretended, was permitted to exhibit his art, was arrived. The fumes again mixed together, and dissolved gradually from observation. The vaults and columns of the church rolled asunder and disappeared, and the front of the mirror reflected nothing save the blazing torches, and the melancholy apparatus placed on the altar or table before it. The doctor led the ladies, who greatly required his support, into the apartment from whence they came, where wine, essences, and other means of restoring suspended animation had been provided during his absence. He motioned them to chairs, which they occupied in silence. Lady Forrester, in particular, wringing her hands, and casting her eyes up to heaven, but without speaking a word, as if the spell had been still before her eyes. "'And what we have seen is even now acting?' said Lady Bothwell, collecting herself with difficulty. "'That,' answered Baptista Damiati, "'I cannot justly or with certainty say. But it is either now acting, or has been acted, during a short space before this. It is the last remarkable transaction in which the Cavalier Forrester has been engaged.' Lady Bothwell then expressed anxiety concerning her sister, whose altered countenance and apparent unconsciousness of what passed around her excited her apprehensions how it might be possible to convey her home. "'I have prepared for that,' answered the adept. "'I have directed the servant to bring your equipage as near to this place as the narrowness of the street will permit. For not for your sister, but give her, when you return home, this composing draught, and she will be better to-morrow morning.' Few, he added, in a melancholy tone, leave this house as well as in health as they entered it. Such being the consequence of seeking knowledge by mysterious means, I leave you to judge the condition of those who have the power of gratifying such irregular curiosity. Farewell, and forget not the potion. I will give her nothing that comes from you, said Lady Bothwell. I have seen enough of your art already. Perhaps you would poison us both to conceal your own necromancy." but we are persons who want neither the means of making our wrongs known, nor the assistance of friends to right them. "'You have had no wrongs from me, madam,' said the adept. "'You sought one who is little grateful for such honour. He seeks no one, and only gives responses to those who invite and call upon him. After all, you have but learned a little sooner the evil which you must still be doomed to endure. I hear your servant's step at the door, and will detain your ladyship and Lady Forrester no longer.' The next packet from the continent will explain what you have already partly witnessed. Let it not, if I may advise, pass too suddenly into your sister's hands. So saying, he bid Lady Bothwell good night. She went, lighted by the adept, to the vestibule, where he hastily threw a black cloak over his singular dress, and opening the door, entrusted his visitors to the care of the servant. It was with difficulty that Lady Bothwell sustained her sister to the carriage, though it was only twenty steps distant. When they arrived at home, Lady Forrester required medical assistance. The physician of the family attended and shook his head on feeling her pulse. 
"'Here has been,' he said, "'a violent and sudden shock on the nerves. "'I must know how it has happened.' Lady Bothwell admitted that they had visited the conjurer, and that Lady Forrester had received some bad news respecting her husband, Sir Philip. "'That rascally quack would make my fortune were he to stay in Edinburgh,' said the graduate. "'This is the seventh nervous case I have heard of his making for me, and all by effect of terror.' He next examined the composing draft Lady Bothwell had unconsciously brought in hand, tasted it, and pronounced it very germane to the matter, and what would save an application to the apothecary. He then paused, and looked at Lady Bothwell very significantly, at length added, "'I suppose I must not ask your ladyship anything about this Italian warlock's proceedings.' "'Indeed, doctor,' answered Lady Bothwell, "'I consider what passed as confidential, and though the man may be a rogue, yet, as we were fools enough to consult him, we should, I think, be honest to keep his counsel.' "'May be a knave, come,' said the doctor. "'I am glad to hear your ladyship allows such a possibility in anything that comes from Italy.' "'What comes from Italy may be as good as what comes from Hanover, doctor. "'But you and I remain good friends, and that it may be so. "'We will say nothing of Whig and Tory.' "'Not I,' said the doctor, receiving his fee and taking his hat. "'A Carilla serves my purpose as well as a Williamus. "'But I should like to know why old Lady St. Ringans and all that set "'go about wasting their decayed lungs in puffing this foreign fellow. "'Aye, you had best set him down at a Jesuit, as Scrub says. "'On these terms they parted.' The poor patient, whose nerves from an extraordinary state of tension had at length become relaxed in an as extraordinary degree, continued to struggle with a sort of imbecility, the growth of superstitious terror, when the shocking tidings were brought from Holland, which fulfilled even her worst expectations. They were sent by the celebrated Earl of Stair, and contained the melancholy event of a duel betwixt Sir Philip Forrester and his wife's half-brother, Captain Falconer, of the Scotch-Dutch, as they were then called, in which the latter had been killed. The cause of quarrel rendered the incident still more shocking. It seemed that Sir Philip had left the army suddenly, in consequence of being unable to pay a very considerable sum, which he had lost to another volunteer at play. He had changed his name, and taken up his residence at Rotterdam, where he had insinuated himself into the good graces of an ancient and rich burgomaster, and by his handsome person and graceful manners captivated the affections of his only child, a very young person of great beauty, and the heiress of much wealth. Delighted with the suspicious attractions of his proposed son-in-law, the wealthy merchant, whose idea of the British character was too high to admit of his taking any precaution to acquire evidence of his condition and circumstances, gave his consent to the marriage. It was about to be celebrated in the principal church of the city when it was interrupted by a singular occurrence. Captain Falconer, having been detached to Rotterdam to bring up a part of the brigade of Scottish auxiliaries who were in quarters there, a person of consideration in the town, to whom he had been formerly known, proposed to him for amusement to go to the high church, to see a countryman of his own married, to the court daughter of a wealthy burgomaster. Captain Falcomer went, accordingly, accompanied by his Dutch acquaintance with a party of his friends, with two or three officers of the Scotch brigade. His astonishment may be conceived when he saw his own brother-in-law, a married man, on the point of leading to the altar, the innocent and beautiful creature, upon whom he was about to practice a base and unmanly deceit. He proclaimed his villainy on the spot, and the marriage was interrupted, of course. But against the opinion of more thinking men, who considered Sir Philip Forrester as having thrown himself out of the rank of men of honour, Captain Falconer admitted him to the privilege of such, accepted a challenge from him, and in the encounter received a mortal wound. Such are the ways of heaven, mysterious in our eyes. Lady Forrester never recovered from the shock of this dismal intelligence. And did this tragedy, said I, take place exactly at the time when the scene in the mirror was exhibited? It is hard to be obliged to maim one story, answered my aunt, but to speak the truth, it happened some days sooner than the apparition was exhibited. 
"'And so there remained a possibility,' said I, "'that by some secret and speedy communication "'the artist might have received early intelligence of that incident.' "'The incredulous pretended so,' replied my aunt. "'What became of the adept?' demanded I. "'Why, a warrant came down shortly afterwards "'to arrest him for high treason, "'as an agent of the Chevalier de St. George, "'and Lady Bothwell, recollecting the hints "'which had escaped the doctor, "'an ardent friend of the Protestant succession, "'did then call to remembrance "'that this man was chiefly Pone "'among the ancient matrons of her own political persuasion. "'It certainly seemed probable "'that intelligence from the continent, "'which could easily have been transmitted "'by an active and powerful agent, "'might have enabled him to prepare "'such a scene of phantasmagoria "'as she had herself witnessed. "'Yet there were so many difficulties "'in assigning a natural explanation "'that, to the day of her death, "'she remained in great doubt on the subject.' much disposed to cut the Gordian knot by admitting the existence of supernatural agency. "'But, my dear aunt,' said I, "'what became of the man of skill?' "'Oh, he was too good a fortune-teller not to be able to foresee that his own destiny would be tragical if he waited the arrival of the man with a silver greyhound upon his sleeve. He made, as we say, a moonlight flitting, and was nowhere to be seen or heard of. Some noise there was about papers or letters found in the house, but it died away, and Dr. Baptista Damiotti was soon as little talked of as Galen or Hippocrates. "'And Sir Philip Forrester,' said I, "'did he too vanish for ever from the public scene?' "'No,' replied my kind informer. He was heard once more, and it was upon a remarkable occasion. It is said that we Scots, when there was such a nation in existence, have, among our full peck of virtues, one or two little barley corns of vice. In particular, it is alleged that we rarely forgive, and never forget, any injuries received, that we used to make an idol of our resentment, as poor Lady Constance did of her grief, and are addicted, as Burns says, to nursing our wrath to keep it warm. Lady Bothwell was not without this feeling, and, I believe, nothing, whatever, scarce the restoration of the Stuart Lion, could have happened so delicious to her feelings as an opportunity of being revenged on Sir Philip Forrester, for the deep and double injury which had deprived her of a sister and of a brother. But nothing of him was heard or known, till many a year had passed away. At length it was on a Fastern's End, Shrovetide assembly, at which the whole fashion of Edinburgh attended, full and frequent, and when Lady Bothwell had a seat amongst the lady patronesses, that one of the attendants on the company whispered into her ear that a gentleman wished to speak with her in private. In private? And in an assembly room? He must be mad. Tell him to call upon me to-morrow morning. I said so, my lady, answered the man, but he desired me to give you this paper. She undid the billet, which was curiously folded and sealed. It only bore the words, "'Our business of life and death,' written in a hand which she had never seen before. Suddenly it occurred to her that it might concern the safety of some of her political friends. She therefore followed the messenger to a small apartment where the refreshments were prepared, and from which the general company was excluded. She found an old man who, at her approach, rose up and bowed profoundly. His appearance indicated a broken constitution, and his dress, though sedulously rendered conforming to the etiquette of a ballroom, was worn and tarnished, and hung in folds about his emaciated person. Lady Bothwell was about to feel for her purse, expecting to get rid of the supplicant at the expense of a little money, but some fear of a mistake arrested her purpose. She therefore gave the man leisure to explain himself. "'I have the honour to speak with the Lady Bothwell?' "'I am Lady Bothwell. Allow me to say that it is no time or place for long explanations. What are your commands with me?' "'Your ladyship,' said the old man, "'had once a sister, true, whom I loved as my own soul, and a brother, the bravest, the kindest, the most affectionate,' said Lady Bothwell." "'Both these beloved relatives you lost by the fault of an unfortunate man,' continued the stranger. "'By the crime of an unnatural, bloody-minded murderer,' said the lady. "'I am answered,' replied the old man, bowing as if to withdraw. "'Stop, sir, I command you,' said Lady Bothwell. 
Who are you that at such a place and time come to recall these horrible recollections? I insist upon knowing. I am one who intends Lady Bothwell no injury, but on the contrary, to offer her the means of doing a deed of Christian charity, which the world would wonder at, and which heaven would reward. But I find her in no temper for such a sacrifice as I was prepared to ask. Speak out, sir. What is your meaning? said Lady Bothwell. The wretch that has wronged you so deeply, rejoined the stranger, is now on his deathbed. His days have been days of misery, his nights have been sleepless hours of anguish, yet he cannot die without your forgiveness. His life has been an unremitting penance, yet he dares not part from his burden while your curses load his soul. Tell him, said Lady Bothwell sternly, to ask pardon of that being whom he has so greatly offended, not of an erring mortal like myself. What could my forgiveness avail him? Much, answered the old man. It will be an earnest of that which he may then venture to ask from his creator, lady, and from yours. Remember, Lady Bothwell, you too have a deathbed to look forward to. Your soul may, all human souls must, feel the awe of facing the judgment seat, with the wounds of an untended conscience raw and rankling. What thought would it be, then, that should whisper, I have given no mercy? How then shall I ask for it? "'Man, whatever thou mayest be,' replied Lady Bothwell, "'urge me not so cruelly. "'It would be but blasphemous hypocrisy "'to utter with my lips the words "'which every throb of my heart protests against. "'They would open the earth "'and give to light the wasted form of my sister, "'the bloody form of my murdered brother. "'Forgive him? Never! Never! "'Great God! I!' cried the old man, "'holding up his hands. "'Is it thus the worms which thou hast called out of dust "'obey the commands of their Maker?' Farewell, proud and unforgiving woman, exalt that thou hast added to a death in want and pain the agonies of religious despair, but never again mock heaven by petitioning for the pardon which thou hast refused to grant. He was turning from her. Stop, she exclaimed. I will try, yes, I will try to pardon him. Gracious lady, said the old man, you are relieved the overburdened soul, which dare not sever itself from its sinful companion of earth without being at peace with you. What do I know? Your forgiveness may perhaps preserve for penitence the dregs of a wretched life. Ha! said the lady, as a sudden light broke on her. It is the villain himself, and grasping Sir Philip Forrester, for it was he and no other, by the collar, she raised a cry of, Murder! Murder! Seize the murderer! At an exclamation so singular, in such a place, the company thronged into the apartment, but Sir Philip Forrester was no longer there. He had forcibly extricated himself from Lady Bothwell's hold, and had run out of the apartment which opened on the landing place of the stair. There seemed no escape in that direction, for there were several persons coming up the steps, and others descending. But the unfortunate man was desperate. He threw himself over the balustrade, and alighted safely in the lobby, through an open leap of fifteen feet at least, then dashed into the street and was lost in darkness. Some of the Bothwell family made pursuit, and had they come up with the fugitive, they might have perhaps slain him, for in those days men's blood ran warm in their veins. But the police did not interfere, the matter most criminal having happened long since, and in a foreign land. Indeed, it was always thought that this extraordinary scene originated in a hypocritical experiment, by which Sir Philip desired to ascertain whether he might return to his native country in safety from the resentment of a family which he had injured so deeply. As the result fell out so contrary to his wishes, he is believed to have returned to the continent, and there died in exile. End of the Tale of the Mysterious Mirror by Sir Walter Scott Recording by Alexey Talander, Davis, California www.alexeytalander.com